Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Katie Turton on the show. Her Forgotten Lives, the Role of Lenin's Sisters in the Russian Revolution, 1864 to 1937, has just appeared. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Katie Turton on the show. Her Forgotten Lives, The Role of Lenin's Sisters in the Russian Revolution, 1864 to 1937, has just appeared. I read the book with great interest because I had read several Lenin biographies and noted that um, women were very important in his life and particularly his sisters. Katie has cleared up a lot of questions for me and so I enjoyed talking to her, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Katie. Hi. Um, How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm very well. Things are uh, sunny here in the center of the United States, the heartland, as we call it. I don't exactly know what it has to do with hearts, but that's what we call it. Um, (laughs) We're very happy to have Katie Turton on the show today, and she's the author of a book that I uh, read with great gusto because it's uh, Believe it or not, a pet topic of mine. The book is called Forgotten Lives, The Role of Lenin's Sisters in the Russian Revolution, 1864 to 1937. And I have to say, uh, not to um, show my cards, but I thought it was a wonderful book. I really did, and it answered a lot of questions that I had had about Lenin. I mean, I I think I told you in an email, Katie, that I had read Robert Service's, what I thought was a very good biography of um, Lenin, and... uh, you know, these women just keep showing up. He's, he, he's, he's always surrounded by them, or he's with one of them, or one of them is feeding him, or one of them is, you know, uh, writing letters to him, or one of them is uh, proofreading his books, or he's proofreading their books, or, you know, it, just, it was just fascinating to me to see that, you know, that he had, he had lived surrounded in this kind of family circle by these women, and so I was really appreciative of your efforts, and I thought it was uh, great that you um, allowed us to learn a little bit more about them, and we'll talk about the book in a second, but um, right now, if you would, I'd like you to talk a little bit about yourself and tell us where you're from and where you grew up and how you became interested in history. Okay. Um, well, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I went to university at Aberdeen, uh, where my hometown, in fact, um, and my initial undergraduate degree was English and history. Um, mm-hmm. I did a, a joint honours. Um, but from the start... I always leaned more towards the history side, and um, as soon as I met the lecturers who specialised in Russian history, I knew what my my own special topic was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with two fantastic lecturers, David Longley and Professor Paul Dukes, um, and their inspirational teaching um, really captured my imagination. That's funny. I know I know Paul Dukes quite well, oh, actually. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, well, you'll, you'll understand how inspirational. Yeah. No, he's a fantastic um, guy. Yeah. So at, at that point, I, I decided that 
Russian history was the way I was going to go, and I wanted to do a PhD. So I went off to Strathclyde University down in Glasgow to learn Russian for a uh-huh. year. And then from there, I went on to Glasgow University itself to do the PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it, it was a complete fluke, if you like, that I ended up with the topic of Lenin's sisters. Um, uh-huh. Basically, the woman who ran the language course at Strathclyde um, was married to James White, um, another a fairly uh-huh. famous Russian historian who yeah. had just done a biography of Lenin. Yeah. And when I spoke to her about wanting to do a PhD, she mentioned her husband and he suggested the topic of Lenin's sisters. It's and a, a I to confess, at that point I didn't actually know Lenin had sisters. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, That's funny. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, um, so I've, I've always been heartened by the fact that when I speak to other academics, a lot of them don't realise that Lenin had sisters either. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it it was a fantastic topic for me because it covered both the revolutionary period, which was my key interest, but it also obviously brought in women's history, which is my yeah. other main concern. So. Oh, no, when you emailed me, I, I just, because it really is the case. I'm not exaggerating at all. When I read Services biography, I said, you know, the most fascinating part about this is his family life, not just his family life with these women, because they were so incredibly important and interesting. Mm. Um, I, I, I think it was a, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's an absolutely terrific topic, and we'll talk about it in a second. So um, then you uh, started to write the PhD, and yeah. this book is the result of the PhD, is that right? This was your dissertation? Yes. We read into a book. Uh-huh. And uh, why don't we just go ahead and talk about the book itself then. How, um, so we know how you got the topic. Um, how did you execute it, so to say? I mean, I noticed one thing that I thought was fantastic is, is that the Russians were apparently uh, very generous in the archives with you. You got to look at things that well, I thought they were remarkable. Yeah, um, I've, I've never been sure um, why it was that the access was so open. I mean, I, I spent three, I had three sessions in, in Moscow working in the archives, um, and I was allowed access to basically all the, the personal files of the of the sisters. Um, I sometimes wonder if it's because they don't they don't see them as important, or if they don't see them as, as potentially having. A, a threat of some kind, or that yeah. there's no controversy in their past. Um, yeah. But but obviously, I wasn't going to point anything out to them. You know that they were more important, perhaps, than they realised. So yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. But I mean, the list of primary sources that you got, which is very well laid out in the book. I mean, it's truly, it just it it, it must have been such fun. Oh, yeah, to work absolutely. through those materials. I mean, I yeah, I, I've been in Soviet archives, and um, I didn't have as much fun as you did. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think my um, I think my favorite letter was um, seeing a, a letter, um, an original letter from Stalin to Maria with the, the Stalin signed in blue pen, pencil. Um, which that was always a bit of a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's amazing. I can I can only imagine like just seeing something like that. It must have been incredible. So yeah. why don't we go up directly to the the the, the topic of the book itself, and it's about uh, really on the most general sense, it's about Lenin and his family, and primarily his sisters, primarily two of them, um, Anna and, and Maria. Yeah. Uh, you, you also have quite a bit in there about uh, uh, Nadezhda Krupskaya, who was yeah. his wife. So why don't we begin um, at the very beginning um, and talk about uh, Ilich's, um family life, where he was born, and what, where did he arrive in the birth order and that kind of thing. Okay, well, um, the, the Ulyanov family was, um, well, it was enormous. Um, there were um, three sons and, and, and three daughters, and then two other children who, who died in infancy, unfortunately. And um, it, it's not, it's, it, you know, it's not a myth that his, his childhood was this idyllic experience, you know, um, loving parents um, who 
believed that all their children were, were equal, that they should have all the same opportunities. Some were spent sort of running around in the countryside and yeah. playing in orchards and, um, and just a, a, you know achieving well at school. Um, and what's fascinating is that there's really nothing in their early life that might point them to um, a more radical future. Yeah. I mean, obviously they were brought up by progressive parents with a liberal outlook, but the, it, it's such a sort of normal childhood, if you like, that it always perplexes. Um, I think it's quite perplexing to see how their their lives then, then change. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And so is Alexander, who's the um, second born, I think, you see the first one actually to kind of pick up radicalism? Um, I, I, I would say that Anna and Alexander, Anna being the eldest and then there's Alexander, um, yeah. they, they both go off to university at the same time, and I'd say that... Um, their their very first experiences were absolutely equal in the sense that they you know they both got involved in in, in student oh, sorry I think go ahead yeah um, in student in student politics in student politics and discussion circles um, I think the, the quirk of the Russian system at that point was that even political discussions were so frowned on by the frowned upon by the state that mm-hmm. before you knew it the most innocent of conversations could be more political and, and more radical um, than they would in a, in a more open democratic context. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously Alexander takes a step further, which, which Anna does not, and um, falls in with a, a, a group that have um, have decided to, to act out their revolutionary ideas um, in, in acts of, of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their plan was to assassinate the Tsar. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't get very far. The, uh, the police were apparently quite in- effective at at infiltrating those organizations because they captured Alexander pretty quickly. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely, yes. The, the, the plot um, was, was, was thwarted. Um, um, they managed to intercept um, telegrams and, and um, had, been, had been watching the members of the group as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a telegram that Anna, in fact, received, which was sent to her as a sort of as a clean address that the yeah. police could recognize that, that, that draws her to the police's attention and means that she, too, is accused and, and in fact, punished for being part of a group that, that she hadn't actually been involved in. Uh-huh. And how did the Ulyana family uh, respond to Anna's and Alexander's address? They were in Petersburg at the time, is that right? Um, they, were, they were outside St. Petersburg, down in their family estate, and by yeah. this point, this, this father had died, um, yeah. and it's never clear if he knew anything of, of what the, his eldest children were experiencing at university. Um, I mean, obviously, there was, was, was shock, um, but to your credit, um, Alexander and Anna's mother immediately dropped everything, went straight to St. Petersburg um, yeah. to plead on their behalf. Um, he saw the police chief and so on appeal to the Tsar himself. Um, visited her children and um, did everything she could to, to have their sentences alleviated. Obviously, she failed in Alexander's case. He was um, hanged. Um, but she did manage to have Anna's sentence of five years of Siberian exile changed to five years of exile um, at the family estate. So mm-hmm. she, allowed, she was allowed to bring Anna home, acting as her guarantor, if you like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did this um, radicalize the rest of the children, at least the ones who were alive at the time? That would be Olga. She was alive. And, um, and, and uh, Volodya there, little Vladimir. The yeah, well, man. I mean, Maria and Dimitri are, um, have been born by this point as well, but they're, they're so much younger okay. that, that, yeah. that they are not really, um, certainly not politicized. And even with um, Vladimir and Olga, um, there's, there's all sorts of myths that this is the moment, this is the moment where Lenin suddenly decides his whole future path. But, but really... 
there's there's just shock um, a desire to find out what had actually happened um, and a kind of step by step retracing of of what Alexander had been up to um, and and indeed what Anna had been involved in as well and and, and there's just a gradual build up over time um, into much more radical activities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not least when they finally go to university themselves um, Lenin and Olga yeah I see what you mean so um, at what point do um, Anna and Vladimir and um, Olga, I guess at this point, do they encounter the Social Democrats, that is the Marxist party? Um, it's it, um, once you get into St. Petersburg, but by this point, I mean, Anna's kind of stuck at home at this point in her right. exile, but, uh, but um, Olga goes off to university um, in St. Petersburg. She's allowed to go there. Now, she doesn't actually meet the Social Democrats, but just she meets people who are future Social Democrats, mm-hmm. if you like, and then unfortunately dies. Lenin has had to do his um, law degree by distance, but when he then goes, when he visits Olga, um, it's then that he first get invo- gets involved in, in revolutionary circles, meets people like Krupskaya, mm-hmm. um, and from that point is, is integrated into the social democratic movement. I mean, the party itself is formed 1898, so... Um, mm-hmm. 1898, which is, yeah, I mean, Lenin was born in a- 1870 or something like that, and, yeah. and so, yeah, he was, a, he was a mature person when he encountered them. Were they yeah. reading Marx at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are uh, uh, quite a lot of the um, Olga herself, for example, and Anna, um, and um, had notebooks in the the archives where they were, you know, notebooks that they had um, yeah. jotted down as they were reading reading from Marx. Amazing source. Yeah, that's an yeah. amazing source. So then we should think, and I think you portray Anna and Olga until she died. Um, and then Vladimir as all having been radicalized in this way and all being interested in in radical thought, including Marxism. Yes. Yes, at the time. So, yeah, I mean, and that's an interesting revision in and of itself, because when you read the history of, uh, you know, the Bolshevik Party or uh, the Menshevik Party or the SDs in general, they're, they're usually left out. <laughs> and, yes. and Olga, yeah, no one ever reads about them. Maria comes along a little bit later, and we'll talk about her. Uh, so uh, at this time, what were relations like within the Ulyana family between Anna and Olga and Vladimir, and, and then later Dmitri is born, I guess. Is it Dmitri? Is that right? I'm yes, trying yes. To, Yeah, and then Maria finally comes in. What, what, what kind of a family was it? Um, it was a, a very close-knit family. I don't think... I, um, it, it, but I think we were um, close and loving and, and supportive. I mean, what was interesting was that, um, you know, while biographers would tend to paint Lenin as the centre of the family, it's, it's to me it was a much more complicated picture where, until his death, Alexander... Um, was very much sort of the, the favourite son, um, and even after his death, obviously c- continued to have a very sort of emotive, emotional place in the in the family's memory. Um, mm-hmm. There's interesting age gaps between the, the the sisters and between the brothers. So in fact, it was boy-girl pairings that you got within yeah, the family. So you that, yeah. um, Anna and Alexander were were buddies. Um, Olga and, and, and Vladimir were um, also played together. And then Dmitri and, and, and Maria again sort of paired up because um, by the time they were they were growing up, Anna and Alexander had left had left yeah. the home. Yeah. I mean, you, there's also ups and downs. There's um, stories of of Anna falling out with Maria um, while she's still grieving for Alexander. The stories of Lenin um, tormenting Dmitri as a boy, and um, uh-huh. so you know it, it's also a normal family and having its ups and downs and, and fallouts. But it does seem to me to be a remarkably. Uh Maybe this is just because I'm an American from the heartland that I mentioned before. Um, a remarkably intellectual family. I mean, they're real readers and real talkers. 
they yeah. have, yeah, I mean, I think you found that in their correspondence, too. I mean, they're people of ideas. Ideas really matter to them. Yes, very much so. Um, yeah, they're all avid readers. Um, I mean, they read multiple languages. Oh, yes, they, well, ab- yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah. And, you know, they all have ambitions to sort of um, apply that knowledge as well. Olga sort of has ambitions first to be a doctor, then of a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there's one person who sort of doesn't have that same kind of confidence, it's Anna, and she, she thinks about perhaps becoming a writer. So mm-hmm. in some ways, she, she is perhaps the, 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 the less, slightly less intellectual one of, of the whole family, but it's, I think it's more of a confidence issue. Um, but certainly the rest of them, they all have ambitions to apply their knowledge, um, to, to write, to, to produce produce their work, particularly once they're into the, the, the Bolshevik party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this confidence issue is very interesting, and I I, uh, I appreciated what you had to say on it as a teacher, because it's, not to um, anachronize here, but it's so often the case that my female students don't have the confidence that they should. And you mm-hmm. can clearly see that with... Anna and Maria, who had spent their, almost their whole lives in the revolutionary movement, when they come, you have a great part of the book at the end, when I, I guess they're basically re- repeatedly asked to write what are biographical sketches of themselves, autobiographical sketches, and they just won't do it, or they don't yeah. know how to do it, yeah. because they're so um, used to talking about other people. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it was, it, it, was, it was one of the first sort of um, obstacles, if you like, um, for actually researching them, because obviously the, the, the first port of call is their own memoirs, their own autobiographies, some of which yeah. are published and some in the archives. Um, but but um, they do almost everything they possibly can to deflect attention they from do. what they did. Um, obviously, a lot of their time is devoted to talking about their relationship with Lenin and how they helped him. Yeah. Um, but if you if you stop there, it'd be quite easy to believe that they, they didn't really do a great deal. Yeah, no, no, I think that's exactly right. There's also something, I mean, we should just tell people that don't know, there's also something about the kind of um, Bolshevik ethos in that. Skromnest, you know, was a very, this kind of humility was a very important thing, and and Lenin himself was uh, really quite a stickler about that. I mean, he wasn't wasn't a a fan of any sort of cult of personality, even though one one became associated with him. So why don't we take the story forward a little bit. Who first decides to become a professional revolutionary among them? Gosh, they, I've, never sort of, I've, I've never actually thought about it in those they all, think, Well, they all end up as professional revolutionaries, Yes, I think, basically. I, think I, mean, um, I mean, Lenin's path is easiest to trace because he's sort of, um, um, he's in St. Petersburg. Um, he, he probably is the one who's freest to get involved. Maria's still very young. Anna's stuck at home in, in exile. Yeah. Um, but as, as soon as she's free to get involved as well, she, she, she goes back into the movement and quite quickly establishes herself. And as soon as Maria's old enough, as soon as she comes to university, um, she and Dimitri um, get stuck in, if you like, um, in student circles and then obviously with the, with the party itself. Yeah. So it, it, it's a, based on age hierarchy, really, um, uh-huh. is it, how they join the, join the movement. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I see. But by, uh, let's say, roughly 1900, yes. they all are heavily involved. Yes, absolutely, and and roaming Russia and beyond, um, uh, uh, fulfilling their party duties. Yeah. So let me ask this, um, because I think I'll uh, again I'll come back to the heartland. You know, one of the questions Americans like to ask other Americans is, how do you make your living? What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> how did they? How did they live if they were professional revolutionaries? How did they? Uh, how did they put bread on the table? Not that they were rich or anything. I just it's kind of an interesting logistical question. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, and well, I mean, it's it's, it's one of the, the the features of the underground revolutionary movement that the, the most a lot of the most prominent revolutionaries were actually from nobility background of, of some kind and had independent wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would actually freed up their time to actually to, to get involved. And um, 
the, the Ulianas had the common ability through their father's work in the civil service. He'd been made a, um, a nobleman through right. his work. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, the, sorry. They have a pension then. Yes, the mother, the mother has a pension and also yeah. her own um, estate, which she shares with her sister. Yeah. So, so in fact, um, you can say that the mother, um, Maria, actually bankrolls a lot of her, her children's activities, and she's the one who's sending money to them, um, posting bail, uh-huh. but sending them abroad and so on. Um, all of them publish in some form, um, particularly translations. So Anna translates from Italian yeah. sort of children's stories. Right. Um, Lenin's obviously writing as well. Kutsky yeah. is interested in education. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, um, Maria works as a, as a teacher and as a governess. Yeah. Um, but obviously it's a very sort of patchy existence. Yeah, and, no, and they're, they're, they're hardly wealthy, that's clear. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Anna's husband as well also has to be born into, taken into account. Um, he um, has a very successful career as um, an, um, working in an insurance company and various other posts. Yeah, that's smart. And, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's, he, he's actually seems to be able to hold down his post even though he's yeah. um, a revolutionary, so his income is, is there as well. Keeps, he keeps his day job, so to say. Yeah, no, that's another interesting difference between then and now. I think that, again, uh, at least in the United States, I can't speak for uh, Scotland, uh, uh, parents tend to cut their children off after a while. Yeah. <laughs> it will, does not last into your 30s. No, it just does not. Um, so uh, there's another interesting moment here. I thought uh, if, if my memory serves, uh, Lenin is sent, he is actually exiled to Siberia for a certain amount of time, correct? Yeah. Now, does Maria follow him there? And basically, I, I, you know, I want to use these words carefully. Does he take care of him? I mean, how, how, what is that relationship? Um, well, um, when Lenin is sent off into Siberia, it's, it's his wife Krupskaya that follows him. Oh, they, they basically okay. agree to marry um, so that they'll be able to live together. Um, uh-huh. And then Krupskaya's own mother goes out um, in, and, and, and stays with him. Um, Maria's actually sort of um, finishing up university at this point. Um, okay. She remains in, in central Okay, yeah, I got Russia. that wrong. Yeah. No, because so, no, my, my thesis is that um, Lenin never cooked a meal in his life. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> you, think well, you think that's, that's true? That's eminently possible, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. um, he always had these people there, even in exile. Yeah, to, very uh, much. So. <laughs> cook his food for him. Yeah, no, I'd think about that, you know, because I cook three times a week in my family. <laughs> All right, very, thank you. Yeah, I'm, a very, I'm, a very, um, yeah, very, I'm not a Bolshevik, but I'm a very uh, modern guy. Um, so uh, then um, take us to the... Um, uh, Take us to so Lenin uh, between 1900 and about 1905. Where is Lenin living? He's, is he in Zurich at the time? I can't remember. Yes, he, from Siberia he goes um, pretty much straight off into into Europe. Um, yeah. And he, yeah, he's um, and sort of is in various places. And he's in France, he's in Zurich, and yeah. so on. Um, basically, because it's easier for him to sustain his his yeah. revolutionary ties out of um, uh-huh. police. Uh, surveillance. On the other hand, his sisters actually are able to, to stay in Russia and they continue yeah. to be active in, in various towns. And um, where, where is Anna at the time? Well, Anna goes to various places. Um, she works in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh-huh. Um, she goes to Saratov for a while. They're all in Kiev. Um, well, Dmitry, Maria and Anna are in uh, Kiev in a, around 1902 to 1904. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, it's quite hard to keep yeah, no, tabs I mean, on them because yeah. they're, they're constantly moving to escape yeah. police attention and, and so on. Right. I mean, that's another thing we should tell the, um, you know, the listeners that the police um, were all over these people, like as we say, white on rice. I mean, they they yeah. were always under surveillance, constantly under surveillance. Um, yeah. So they did have to move a lot, and their doors were being broken down, and you know, stuff was being confiscated, and their papers being read, and it was a constant sort of thing for them. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a curious mixture in the underground period because on the one hand, you're right, the, the police are um, incredibly efficient. They they have, all, I've seen the surveillance reports, um, I've seen the papers that have been confiscated. Um, and yet, on the other hand, um, when they did actually catch hold of them, it is not unusual for um, particularly, say, Maria, to be released without charge. I mean, having been held for three months or whatever, yeah. but, but still being released without charge, not being sent into exile. I mean, the, there's a kind of mildness about the, the police force in terms of sentences. No, I, 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 you're, you're exactly right. It was really quite a different mentality than we associate with police states, because, you know, yes. just 30 years later, if you did anything like this, you would have been put up against a wall. I'm reminded of this, and I can't really remember. I think I read this in the service biography. Again, this has been five years ago, but when Lenin was sent into exile, to Siberia, the government moved his library for him. It's <laughs> probably true. I mean, he was, he, can you imagine? I know it's astonishing. I mean, he, yeah, he had a big library and he wanted to read in Siberia, so they said, "Yeah, sure, we'll move your library for it." Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, um, he, was, he was even allowed to travel under his own steam. You know, you're given a few days in the capital to tie up your personal affairs, and then he yeah. hopped on a train and travelled. Well, presumably first class all the yeah. way to, to Siberia. Ast- so. Astoundingly genteel, really. I think yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. So then, between the period about 1900-1905, Anna and Maria both hold part posts, don't they? I can't remember yeah. exactly what they were, but maybe you could describe them. Well, the main activities um, for the sisters was usually on what they'd call the technical side of the party. They're, they're not the ones publishing their latest thoughts on political questions. Yeah. They're the ones who are coding and decoding letters and correspondence between yeah. revolutionary groups. They're organizing the, the travel for, for revolutionaries who are trying to flee Russia or move to a different town. Um, they're distributing leaflets um, producing the leaflets in the first place, uh-huh. they're working for newspapers. So it, it's the kind of work that disappears in, in bigger, more general works on the revolution, but it, it was kind of, it, it, it was the, the very work that kept the revolutionary movement yep. going. Yep, yep. Yeah, I know they pay a lot of attention to the printing press. I mean, this is something that I think that uh, our, our students will forget about. But to them, the printing press was life. And they're constantly working on pamphlets and going places to get pamphlets and reading other people's pamphlets and writing pamphlets and editing pamphlets. It's, it's as if the pamphlet is kind of the sort of central, iconic element in the entire movement. And Maria and Anna were really, they were involved in what Russians called Gelaprezvodstva. You know, they were working through these papers to make yeah. sure that, you know, the, you know, to, put, to use a bad metaphor, the trains were running on time in the revolutionary movement. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Um, and I mean, some of my favourite sources to work with were, um, you know, Maria's letters to colleagues saying, "You're not doing the code properly, or your 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 chemical ink, your invisible ink didn't work, <laughs> yeah, and the letter right. was ruined. Be more careful. Yeah, pro- see, follow the technique properly, and yeah, so on." No, that's very funny. So then, uh, 1905 happens, and for those uh, listeners that don't know, there was a big revolution in Russia in 1905, and uh, this sort of galvanizes the party. And does uh, does Lenin return at that time? I can't remember. <laughs> He returns briefly in, in, in 1905, but he's not able to stay very long, obviously, um, given police, police pressure and, and heads back into, into Europe. Um, but, but he still maintains, you know, one of the key links that he, he maintains um, with the, the revolution movement in Russia is through his sisters, who are always reporting back to him about what's going on, visiting him from time to time. Um, so there's, there's a constant exchange of information um, uh-huh, across uh-huh. the border. And then um, after 1905, uh, what posts do... Anna and Maria hold. What do they do then? It's, it's much more of the same thing. I mean, one of the significant places that they go is, is um, Saratov, where they um, 
are they sort of revitalise um, a party that has been yeah, sort of this, forced yeah, by the police. Um, they, they get it going again, get more members, um, they're able to send delegates to one of the many party congresses, um, they revive a newspaper, um, and, and manage to spend a good, uh, you know, a good two years there working. But as usual, the, the footsteps of the police aren't far behind them. Maria is sent off into exile up into the north, uh-huh. um, and, and Anna um, has to sort of move on. Um, uh-huh. And by this point, she has, of course, adopted a son as well. So right. there's slightly more domestic considerations that she has to bear in mind. Yeah, so um, Anna, as you said, uh, marries a fellow named Mark, who's also mm-hmm. in the movement but holds a day job working as an engineer, I think. And mm-hmm. they adopt uh, uh, Georgi or Gordia. Yeah, yeah, Gordia. Yeah, um, But then Maria never um, marries, does she? Is that right? Uh, no, she doesn't. Um, and, and it's sort of of endless amusement to Trotsky, who sort of disguises as an old spinster. But um, I I think there's evidence of of, of one relationship um, with a, another revolutionary. Um, but obviously Maria never writes anything about it um, uh-huh. herself, except yeah. sort of sort of um, small mentions in, in letters. Um, uh-huh. But the relationship doesn't seem to have lasted, and then the the revolutionary was actually uh, killed in the First World War. So. Uh-huh. And, and after that, there's not much evidence of, of any other relationship. Now, would you say that, um, you know, one of the interesting things about all of these people, if I could generalize a little bit, is that is, is, the, is the lack of, um, well, the thorough romanticism of the mm. movement, but no actual romance. They, they are not very big on love. They, they don't, there's just not very much of that. Why is that? It, it's, a, it's a difficult question. I mean, um, um, uh, Martov's sister famously said that the Lenin sisters were, were cold women, and so it, it, it's a strange sort of change from their very sort of close family circle that in later life they they don't seem to have had much of in the way of, of romantic relationships. I mean, Anna's relationship with her husband does appear to have been a love match, but if you go to their flat, which is uh, preserved in St. Petersburg, you mm-hmm. know, they, they had separate bedrooms and... Yeah. Um, I, I, I suppose other things just matters more to them. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's right. If I could just jump in for a second, I mean, I I do think that they were married to the movement. Again, that's kind of a hoary old metaphor, but I, I really think that was the very first. That was really their their calling and their love, and it was the thing that they did and the thing that they had devoted their lives to to an extent that I, I don't think we can really understand. We don't have things like this, and at least. Here in Iowa, we don't. <laughs> I, I don't think we do. So I, I found it. I found it very interesting that that they had really, because they were also all workaholics. I mean, what we would call workaholics. I mean, they were. You know, Anna and Maria worked 12 hours a day, as far as I can tell. Oh, easily, yeah. Um, it, it just it's astonishing. I mean, it wasn't unusual for them to work until two or three in the morning. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, it, the the physical ailments that they all suffer, um, particularly after the revolution, is, is indicative of the, the physical strains of their life before the revolution as well, you know, living in, you know, prison conditions, um, the constant stress of police attention, um, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, just just sheer hard work for days upon days. Yeah, no, it's astounding. So let's uh, skip from 1905 all the way to 1917. Uh, How, um, uh, what what were the roles, so to say, of uh, Anna and Maria, and I suppose we could talk about Krupskaya as well, in the revolution itself? Well, there's another sort of classic moment in, in, in Russian history where the, the women disappear. You know, there's been a lot of work on Bolshevik women and their contribution, but um, get to 1917 and they sort of disappear. But, uh-huh. you know, the, 
they're not sort of um, speaking on the podiums, obviously, unless they're Col- Alexander Colantai. Um, they're just all working behind the scenes. Maria and Anna go straight to what they do best, which is newspaper work. So mm-hmm. between the February Revolution and the October Revolution, um, they're publishing Pravda, um, they're publishing more pamphlets, they're, they're commenting on events and so on. And then as, as soon as the government is formed... Um, once again, they're simply trying to find roles supporting it in, in any way that they can. Maria goes, continues to work for, for Pravda, becoming the executive secretary. Um, whereas Anna um, pursues another sort of lifelong interest and goes into children's welfare, mm-hmm. um, joins, joins the department that's being formed um, and, and starts looking at um, you know, children's homes and care for orphans and, mm-hmm. and so on. Now, there was, a, there was some controversy, I guess, uh, as to how they got these posts. Yeah. And you engage that in the book. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, um, you know, you, you, the, the, you get comments from, from observers and, and from historians as well that, you know, it's, they, they basically got these posts because they were related to Lenin. It was, um, you know, these were, they were um, figureheads, essentially. They, they didn't have serious jobs. But um, there's two things to remember. First of all, that basically Anna and Maria simply continue to do the type of work that they've always done. So they are qualified for the post that they sure. end up with. And the other important thing is that there's so few loyal Bolshevik personnel mm-hmm. as the government has formed that everyone who had any connection with the Bolsheviks were, were getting posts. I mean, it's how everyone got their job, that, that they knew Lenin, their their husband was in the party, mm-hmm. um, and, and so on. So it's, um, it, it, it's not a specific case of nepotism relating to them in some ways. It's simply that everyone simply pitched in and were given... Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I can, I can see, I can see how, in hindsight, it might look like nepotism. But I think oh, if yes, you yes, understand yes. the situation, which was uh, basically a kind of a fire drill where they were just trying to get everything done. I mean, people don't yes. really understand. I think how close the Bolshevik regime came to collapsing, well, that, yes, simply because they couldn't manage affairs. They just yes. didn't have the bureaucratic. Uh, I was going to say manpower. They didn't have the bureaucratic <laughs> personnel um, well, to actually get the job done. Yeah, um, or, and, or, and, and they did work all the time. I mean, I, yeah. I, I've read these things where they just basically don't sleep. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. And, and they're, they're working with the same privations. That, I mean, they get slightly more food because obviously they're working in the government, but um, they don't have any fuel in the private offices. They have to burn old newspapers. Maria yeah. can't get a pair of scissors. So... Um, you do get a sense reading their own autobiographies and, and, and other testimonies that you know everyone was, was going through the privations that, that, that Russia experienced. Yeah, no, they were it, at the heart of government. It doesn't sound like it was any fun. So uh, in 1917 or 1918, where is Anna? Where are Anna and Mark? Are they in Petersburg? Anna, yeah, I mean Anna initially um, uh, stays in St. Petersburg when the government moved to Moscow, but uh-huh. she soon follows. Um, um, Mark unfortunately dies um, oh, shortly right. after after the revolution um, yeah. and was buried up in St. Petersburg. Uh-huh. Um, so from that point on, um, Anna has her own flat, but she's obviously in close contact with Maria, um, her Lenin and Kutska, who are actually in the, the Kremlin. Yeah, um, th- this is the part I wanted you to talk about because I think it's <laughs> I think people don't realize this. And, and I really, it, it had not come to my full consciousness until I read it again. I'd read it in service and I read it in your book. And I'm like, so Krupskaya... Maria and Lenin share a small flat in the yeah. Kremlin. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's it's what they've been doing for the last 20 years. I mean, um, you know, Maria often stayed with uh, with Lenin and Krupskaya um, um, in in Europe, in Russia. So it, it was it was kind of a, a, a natural step that they they continue to to live all together. 
So I think that they constitute a small family. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you can probably say. Now, uh, then there is a lot. There's a lot to be said. I mean, I can only imagine the psychological. And I, I think actually you show. Let, let me let me issue you a compliment. I think you show really admirable restraint on the uh, sort of psychological front, mm. which is to say, you know, these three people, all of whom were very independent personalities, mm-hmm. all of whom were united in this kind of world historical cause lived together for, I don't know, how many decades? A long time. I mean, they lived cheek by jowl for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's all I can, you know, I, I go home every night to my wife and my son, and I think, uh, well, this is going to be great for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't tell my wife I said that. Uh, so, no, but I can only imagine, you know, how that would shape somebody psychologically, living together like that for 20 years. You know, Lennon was not an easy guy. No, I mean, he, he really clearly wasn't. wasn't an easy guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it was that really must have been something. So I guess I – could I ask you to um, sort of uh, unrestrain yourself a little bit and talk <laughs> about the dynamics of, of Krupskaya, Maria, and Lenin in their small flat in in um, in the Kremlin or wherever? Yeah. Um, it's um, – obviously, it's most famously addressed as this sort of three-way relationship when Lenin falls ill. Um, and um, there are lots of reports of, of Maria and Krupskaya having huge rows and uh, disagreements over how Lenin should be cared for and, and so on. Um, and, I, you know, it, it wouldn't be a surprising thing if there were, yeah. were rows all the way through their, their Kremlin life as well. I mean, I... Um, People who live together fighting. I've never heard what? of such a thing. It's I know. Well, <laughs> well this is it. Um, what happens so when his, you know, um, some historians get their hands on it, so is that it begins to kind of eclipse everything else that was, yeah. that was going on. And, you know, the fact that they made up the day, the day later and went on holiday together yeah, kind of right, gets forgotten. Exactly. Yeah, so, no, right, exactly. Um, yeah. But I think the interesting thing is, that, I mean, um, Krupska <laughs> and Maria did form a very strong bond, I think, in the underground period before the revolution. You know, they, they, they recognized the shyness in each other. Um, you know, they, they they certainly got on better than Krupskaya did with, with Anna. So I, I don't think that ever went away. And, you know, even after Lenin's death, even if that central point had disappeared, they still chose to live with each other. So Yeah, no, that's exactly um, right. I did notice, and I don't think I'm wrong in saying there's a certain amount of editorializing in the cover shot on the book. <laughs> yes. Which shows, it's a marvelous picture, by the way, yeah. of Maria and Krupskaya arm in arm. Yeah. Walking, yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I got that. But still, this stuff persists. That, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of these tropes that you you learn about that uh, that they were at each other's throats and that they hated one another and you know that they were kind of. I mean, you know, to to put it in the language that I think many of the old commentators wanted to say but didn't, that they were both spiteful bitches. Yes. Well, that's essentially um, what is suggested. Partic- I mean, Trotsky himself is, does, you know, doesn't pull his punches when he's talking about their, now, their now Trotsky, there, that, that is a spiteful bitch right there. Trotsky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. I, mean, I think it's, it's always one of the difficulties when you're um, sort of a, a feminist historian writing about women because you, you want them to be perfect, you want them to yeah. be nice to each other, and you want them to be the best at everything. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I, you know it, it was important to suggest that there was an alternative perspective, but I knew that I couldn't claim that they didn't fall out, you know, that you have to sort of offer the sort of what, what I hoped was a well-rounded perspective on, on right. what their relationship might right. be like. Which is, which is to say they were people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not cardboard cutouts. They were actual people who did yeah. actual people stuff like the rest yeah. of humanity does. So then uh, let's, um, after the building of the Soviet regime, maybe you could say a few words about what they were up to. Um. Well, While uh, Lenin was what, alive, let's, let's like take it to the point where Lenin um, actually gets sick and goes to um, Gorky. Okay. Well, um, 
Anna works in the Department of Children's Welfare, facing an uphill battle trying to get resources to look after the, the orphans. Um, and Maria continues to work as the Executive Secretary of Pravda. So, um, which was obviously it wasn't the same as being the editor, but she she sort of the day-to-day management of of the whole newspaper. Um, she was also heavily involved in what was called the Worker Correspondent Movement, which was all about getting ordinary workers to write into Pravda and talk about their their lives. And and she mm-hmm. sort of became seen to some extent as a kind of voice of the people, you know, um, people in trouble in Moscow would appeal to her and ask for help. Um, and Anna and Maria would both try and use their influence and their, their position to, to help people get, get accommodation, get a job, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Um, now, Anna's actually um, um, nearing 60 by this point, so her career sort of begins to slow down at this point. Um, she goes to work for the history of the party department, basically writing about the revolution, establishing yeah. the party party mm-hmm. line. Um, and Maria takes a bit of a career break when Lenin falls ill. She goes off to Gorky with him to, to care for him. But they're both quite public figures. You know, they're talked about in the press. Their role in the revolution is discussed. Um, and as I say, yeah, they're, they're sort of guardians of the people, if you like. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, is it mentioned that they are Lenin's sisters at this point? No, a, it, it's interesting that they, they, it tends not to be mentioned before Lenin's death. Um, Anna is um, referred to using her married name, so the, the connection isn't clear. Yep. And, and I mean, obviously Maria's full name is used, but she tends not to be, to be described as Lenin's sister. And um, I, it was probably a very conscious choice on, on all their parts um, that the relationship wasn't to be seen as important. And they, they never called him Lenin, did they? No, absolutely not. No, it was um, Volodya usually. Volodya, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, they never so. him. yeah, no, it's exactly right. So um, then Lenin falls ill, goes to Gorky, and there is some controversy about how he should be cared for and so on and so forth. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, this is the point where um, political and personal tensions um, sort of come together. Anna's not really involved in, in the caring um, for Lenin, but um, Maria and uh, Krupskaya are obviously there. And, and while um, Maria thought that visitors should be kept limited, um, that, that uh, Lenin shouldn't be disturbed and so on, Krupskaya was very keen to keep him informed, believing that it was it was political intrigue and action and so on that, that sustained Lenin. Um, it's, it's never re- really resolved, but what it does begin to do is sort of set up divisions between the two women that will continue to... to be present um, as Stalin begins to manoeuvre himself into a position of influence and, and power. Um, mm-hmm. Stalin obviously falls out with Krupskaya over um, her sharing information with Lenin that he didn't want yeah, to... Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me somewhat I- important in terms of... Well, it's important in a number of ways that you know better than I do, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, basically, Krupskaya continued to keep Lenin informed of, of disputes, discussions, um, particularly um, controversies with Trotsky, and, and um, Stalin got wind of this um, and phones Krupskaya um, and gives her an awful row on the telephone. Um, Maria has left a kind of astonishingly um, horrible um, description of, of this moment where Krupskaya is crying and she's sobbing and she's rolling on the floor. Rolling on the so floor, on. yes, rolling on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and I, now, this was never published, and I'm not sure I've even got to the bottom of why she would have written it, um, mm-hmm. but it, it certainly sets up that Krupskaya and, and Stalin are going to be enemies for the next few years. Mm-hmm. Maria, on the other hand, is much more sympathetic to Stalin. Um, uh, she, she accepts his apology for, for um, shouting at Krupskaya. Um, and, and after Lenin's death, she continues to support him um, 
as he's beginning to rise up to power, where, whereas Krupskaya is much more seen as an oppositional figure. Uh-huh. Um, and the whole thing culminates with a party congress where Krupskaya works, stands up with the opposition and criticises Stalin, and then Maria stands up and essentially defends Stalin and tells the opposition to, to fall back into line. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that most people would... Uh, Again, we, we, kind of t- we kind of tend to see the entire Soviet experience from uh, the point of view of 1937. So when we talk about opposition here, maybe you could tell the listeners exactly what, what is meant. Okay, well, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing to remember. I mean, in the 1920s, um, yeah, we, we, we don't have um, the, the, the terror and the violence that we're going to see in the right. 30s. This is, this is a discussion about the route the party is going to take in terms of leadership. Um, obviously, Trotsky has been um, dismissed and denounced as a possible successor to Lenin. Mm-hmm. Um, Stalin is emerging as a leading figure. Um, and you have debates going on about um, is he gaining too much power? Is, is he sort of taking the party co- even closer to dictatorship? Um, versus an opposition which is, is talking about sort of collective leadership and saying that no one can replace Lenin. Mm-hmm. Tied in with that, you've also got big economic debates as well, where... Um, Stalin, first of all, um, stands against the left who are aiming for rapid industrialization, whereas he's taking a softly, softly approach um, with Bukharin. Um, mm-hmm. And having defeated them, he then turns around and, and defeats the very people he'd just been defending, in, in particular Bukharin, who had said that industrialization should be gradual yeah. um, and in cooperation with the, with the peasantry. And, and the consequences of defeat become more and more severe as time goes on. I mean, defeat at one point meant that you had to say that you were wrong and that you would support the party line. But by 1927, you get kicked out of the party. Is that correct? Yeah, there's, there's, there's much greater stress um, being, and, and sort of pressure being placed on people who aren't following the party. Um, so Maria, who had been a kind of supporter of Stalin um, alongside Bukharin, um, finds herself being labelled with Bukharin as Stalin turns against them both. And, and you get these sort of horrendous um, uh, sort of witch hunts on the go where um, Maria sort of hauled before the Central Control Committee. She's, she's asked to denounce Bukharin, not only at the meeting, but she's supposed to write things against him. Yeah. Um, and, and she does. She, she, um, she does... Um, she, she fails to defend him, but she doesn't actually write against Bukharin uh-huh. in, in public. Um, uh-huh. So she, she does draw that line. But, of course, it costs her her post at, at Pravda immediately. Yeah. Um, I, I, I also think it's very important to, to, to kind of put this in the, in the right context, because these people were kind of between the – at least this is my interpretation – that they were uh, – I'm not defending them, but they were between the devil and the deep blue sea. On the one hand, they had given their entire lives to this cause, mm-hmm. and that was the most important thing to them. And they certainly were going to do anything that was necessary in order to support that cause. On the other hand, they had personal loyalties, and they had to decide what they were going to do. And in in my experience uh, studying the Bolsheviks, they almost never chose personal loyalties. They almost always chose the party because it was just that much more important to them. And this was true across the board, across personality types, across genders. The cause was more important. And if that meant somebody had to be sacrificed, then they were. And they were ready to be sacrificed themselves. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's it, the, 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 that time of sort of the, the, that massive conflict that's on the go between personal loyalties yeah. and um, um, party loyalty is, 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 is horrific. And you, you get sort of, not very much, but you get small snippets um, in letters from Krupskaya or letters from Maria talking about the strains that they're undergoing and yeah. 
how um, you know that you know Maria seemed to be crying as Bukharin has denounced at party congress and yeah, so on. Yeah, exactly. And, no, really. um, but but you're right. This, they will fall silent. They won't defend the people yeah. who are being expelled from from yeah. the party. Yeah, I think it's understa- I think it's understandable if you look at their entire histories, well, how that, yeah. they came to do this. I, 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 again, I'm not excusing or anything, but I'm saying, look, you know, they're just people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so then uh, one thing that I was particularly interested in, and this might seem like something of a digression, but so uh, Maria is removed from her post at Pravda, correct? Yeah. Now, yeah. is at that point, does she go to, and I may be wrong here, does she go to work for something called the Department of Complaints? Yes. Is that when she does this? I find this Department of Complaints thing fascinating, so fascinating that I even looked up the footnotes. <laughs> Because at one point you say there are like there there a, a, a treasure trove of these things. There's a huge number of these complaints. Has anybody? Are, do they still exist? Yes. Has anybody I, studied these things? Um, I think that it's, it's something that's coming to the attention of, of um, historians of that of that period. You, you, what, we're, what we're seeing now in in, in new research into the thirties is that. Um, you know, it's usually seen as kind of this, this time of mass state repression where everyone is simply made to be submissive and no one will speak against yeah. them, the regime and so on. But actually... Um, I can't remember the figure, but you said for in one year there was 35,000 of them or something. I mean, there's yes, a, a very absolutely. Large there's there's, there's this huge amount of letter writing going on where yeah. peasants, workers and so on are d- directly appealing to the party for, um, you know, for injustices to be, to be t- overturned. I mean, they, they seem to have a very clear idea of... of yeah what their rights are. Um, it, sounds like a, it sounds like an absolutely incredible source. I, maybe I'll go yeah. work on it. I don't know. That's the thing about researching um, Maria. Is that there, there's so many different avenues that could be taken even further yeah. um, with, with more time. And, yeah, it's really. truly remarkable. So she's removed from her post to She goes to work at the uh, Department of Complaints. Mm-hmm. And um, intermittently, she is also involved in, uh, as you said, writing party history and working on uh, Lenin's collected works. And this kind of yes. thing. Is that right? How does, she, uh, how does she do that? What does she do there? Um, well, it's something that they, they all sort of carve a niche um, for themselves um, in, in doing um, basically sort of uh, Lenin was a great had a great sense of, of his own historical importance even from you know from the early stages so they were he, he was meticulous in keeping his own his correspondence his letters his papers and, and so on so um, there's, there's a whole sort of world of work available to Maria and to Anna and, and Krupska even where they can they can sort of hide themselves away from the world a bit work in, in um, what's going to be you know become the Lenin library um and, and, and simply put his papers together, and it's, it's very innocuous, but it still gives them the protection, if you like, mm-hmm. of, of Lenin's name um, mm-hmm. in the face of Stalin's uh, displeasure with him, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and do they write popular books at this time about Lenin and about the early party? Yes, I mean, they're very keen to sort of, they, they, they quite often write um, short sort of short um, short papers about Lenin's childhood and so on, which are deliberately aimed at, at young people. They kind of are holding Lenin up essentially as a model of communist right. behavior um, that, uh-huh. that they want young people to, to emulate. Right. So, um, so that was sort of a safe place for them in the 30s, because they, they were not repressed. No. Um, I mean, ap- apart from being very aware that they were out of favor, that um, they couldn't be seen with with people who had been their, their colleagues and friends for years, um, and so on, but 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 is it, that's about as far as Stalin goes. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, has one last run-in with Stalin, where working on Lenin's, you know, history and Lenin's biography and then her family history, she discovers that Lenin actually had Jewish roots. Yeah, no, and, that's right. Um, yeah. There's sort of a brief, um, a, a very brief, but <laughs> d- discussion where Anna keeps campaigning to Stalin, saying we, we really ought to publish this. It would help, you know, ease anti-Semitism in, in, in the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. so on. But Stalin says. 
absolutely not. And in fact, gets Maria to to go to to go to, to Anna and, and tell her so. So. Uh huh. I see. I see. That's that's very interesting. So, um, Anna dies in nineteen. 19- 35, is that right? Yes. 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 Uh, and uh, since she is a person of some importance, how is she, uh, how is her death treated by the state? Um, well, she, she doesn't get, if you like, the, the, the full... <laughs> the full treatment, yeah. Um, no, but she um, is, is, her body is displayed in Moscow, there are crowds in the street, um, but she in fact had decided she wanted to be buried in St. Petersburg, where her sister Olga, her mother, and um, her husband were all buried. Husband so, married, yeah. um, and I, I was just there actually in the Easter time. There's um, so there's it, in the cemetery. There's um, statues to each of them, uh-huh. um, um, and you know a sort of you know a, a special platform over the over the graves to commemorate uh-huh. them. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. so she's buried in St. Petersburg, and then um, two years later, yes, uh, Maria dies uh, at a ripe old age, and um, how are her remains um, treated? Well, um, in classic Stalin's style, where he was always often prepared to give big funerals to people he, you know, he was secretly glad to be rid of. Um, she, she, she gets full <laughs> treatment. Her, <laughs> her, her ashes are displayed, um, and then she's she's given she's buried in the Kremlin Wall, and um, so it's it's essentially, um, you know, you get sort of small square pan, uh, plaques put on the walls to show where they where they are and she and you know she joins the ranks of many of the old Bolsheviks yeah. fallen shortly after the revolution so yeah uh, that's the be- we should point out that's the best treatment you could get in the well, much, well yeah. with one exception that we're going to talk about presently um so that that so she gets the full treatment she yeah. she gets the colonial and she gets the long sort of parade of dignitaries and the mass mourning and wearing black and radio blackouts and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah she gets the whole thing. So uh, this is a question that you don't touch on, but I I really um, found it. Did, I, I really kind of I, I, I hunger for an answer. What, <laughs> what did they think about um, the Lenin mausoleum? I mean now it's, now Maria the, Maria still lived in the Kremlin, right? Yes. And so Volodya was right outside. Yeah, it's, it's something actually that I, I know. I mean, it must have been a, a extraordinary. Um, <laughs> it's <just> creepy. <laughs> oh well, absolutely. I mean, um, it's creepy. I it's, just it's, yes, well, well, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I mean, I know that the whole family was opposed, but it's it actually, and I know that they sent letters to Stalin asking him, obviously, not to to go ahead with it. But um, but then, you know, whereas we know that Kripskaya went to the mausoleum and so on. Um, I, th- there's no references at all. I couldn't find anything in the letters or where they, they spoke about his tomb or so the fa- going to see the, it. Or the, the, family, the family itself was opposed to the um, embalming and construction of the mausoleum? Very much so, yes. Has, has the history of that been written? Is there anybody who's written? There's a fabulous book called Lenin's Embalmers, uh-huh. um, which sort of goes through the, the, the horrible, grisly details of how they actually yeah, embalmed him. But right. there's a brief discussion about um, fam- the family's objections. Um, yeah. I, I believe Lenin wanted to be buried in St. Petersburg. Like his, like a sister. I'm, if, knowing Lenin, I'm sure he wanted to be buried in, in you know, in St. Petersburg with a plaque about the side as a post-it note. Yeah, probably. Said, yeah. Vladimir yeah. Ilyich Lenin lived, you know, was, yeah. was born and died, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he was not big on the cult, cult of personality thing. So, how were um, uh, Maria and Anna um, treated in Soviet historiography after their death? 
Well, the first thing that happens is silence. Um, it, it, just as when Kripskaya dies, she's not really supposed to be spoken about again. Um, there, there's um, about a 10-year period where there's nothing written about them, um, and, mm. and, and they're, they're simply sort of taken out of, of the public view. Um, after that, um, obviously all their own works about Lenin are, are, are published again, so that, that brings them back into the public eye. Mm-hmm. There's plays written about them. Um, there's... there's a glowing collection of reminiscences about Maria's time at Pravda, where everyone talks about how well, she almost becomes like a, a godlike figure. You know, the, uh-huh. she could see into your soul. She could solve all the problems. She didn't have to shout. She could, but she just commanded everyone. You know, she, she could bleed beautifully. And um, that's just like my boss. If he's listening, <laughs> I, are you there? Are you no. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Um, and, and Anna, to an extent, gets the same kind of treatment, so she was slightly less of a public figure, but, but you yeah. get these sort of glowing, glowing reports. Um, I suppose the, the last stage of the historiography, though, is um, that a lot of the autobiographical material that the, the sisters wrote um, is, is taken very much at face value, and you do get this increasing portrayal of the sisters um, in English language history as, as sort of satellites of Lenin, who yeah. didn't actually have an independent career at all. Um, right. And, and obviously, it was it was it was that element of the story that I wanted to address in the books, sort of restoring their independent careers, their yeah, own and, political views. And yeah, and you do a fine job of it. I mean, that starts very early, and it really does start with um, Lenin's opponents. It really does start. I think it starts with Trotsky. Yes. Who yeah. who who um, uh, was he was uh, he was quite a guy, Trotsky. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was quite a guy. I mean, I mean, he had no reason to like Maria because Maria was was very firmly against yeah. him, um, and you know, blanked him on a number of social occasions and. This very clearly on Stalin's side, so yeah. you, you can understand perhaps you know some of his his anger, but he he uses very sort of specific attacks, you know, like the you know the the, the loveless old spinster and so on, you know, yeah, no, exactly. a, a very no, personal uh, attack. Yeah, um, he was a uh, he was a mean guy. Mm. I mean, Trotsky was mean. There's just no <laughs> question about it. He was a mean guy, and he had this kind of rapier pen, which yeah. he loved. He loved to trash people. He was just really very infatuated with his own, you know, ability to. Put people in the gutter. He's a very interesting, yeah, very interesting, angry guy, very yeah. angry guy. Um, so uh, after, okay, so Stalin dies in 1953, and then in 1956, it's 1956, right? That the famous mm-hmm. speech do, yeah. is. Are, since, since they were never really repressed, are they rehabilitated in any way, or do the, does the image change at all after 1956? Um, yeah, so I mean, because they were never really um, attacked, they were never really attacked openly in the press and like that. So, so the, the key thing was just allowing them to be spoken about again, and um, you know, and, and just as um, Khrushchev's speech um, began to kind of, if you like, revive the Lenin personality cult. Um, similarly, the, the fascination um, with his family revived as well, and um, mm-hmm. you know, huge, huge, huge amount of publications um, talking about the sisters. People, you know, when I met Lenin, when I met Maria, when I met mm-hmm. Anna, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and a lot simply actually collected in the archives, some of which went unpublished. But I find a lot of people writing in letters and so on, talking about their their memories of, of the sisters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So, um, what? Uh, how are they viewed today in? Uh, post-Soviet times, are they remembered at all? I mean, is, is there any, you know, uh, you know, I was thinking, for example, you know, Russians love to go put flowers on graves. Uh, mm. do, do people go to their graves on their birthdays? Well, and Well, when I was there at Easter time, there were flowers yeah. um, on the grave, but I have to say, I've, I've never had a very positive reaction when I've said I've, I've researched Lenin's sisters. A lot of people would say, boff, they were nobodies, or other people will say, oh, look at, look at Alexander, he's much more interesting. Yeah, so, right. um 
so I've, I've often sort of come across, you know, just a, a lack of interest or even a sort of hostility towards, you know, towards the, the that as a, as, a, as a project. I, I don't know if again it's because it's a woman's topic or, um, or if. I, I don't know. I've, I've never been able to see it. I don't know either. I, I mean, it's interesting because I was sitting in on an, a, uh, uh, what, what does one call it, a, uh, um, um, not an oral's defense, but um, um, somebody's comprehensive exams yesterday. And mm. a couple of the people in the room, my colleagues, uh, study um, female uh, well, they study nuns and female religious in mm -hmm. the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, mm -hmm. and they study them as intellectuals um, because they left quite a bit of writing. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's difficult to talk about them because, of course, they weren't allowed to attend university at the time. So none mm -hmm. of them are scholars in a literal sense. Yeah. None, none of them can be doctors. None of them are, in fact, uh, 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 they, they are not... They, they can't study theology because that's a formal discipline. And I think that they, they face a kind of similar problem. You know, how does one talk about the contribution of, of a group of people that was never institutionally recognized but nonetheless was important? Mm. It, it's, a tr it's a tricky thing, I think. And, uh, but I think you negotiated very well by fo you know, kind of just focusing on them. And, and that's really, I think, what you have to do, them and yeah. what they write. Because, you know, they have to negotiate. And this is something that we... we uh, I think we forget in this, you know, it's funny, my, my, it's, it's, my, my wife is quite a feminist, you know, and, it, and it's always interesting hearing her perspective on things, because, you know, from, from my chair, you know, uh, it's, it's as if the feminist revolution has succeeded, and that's all over now, and there's no more, no more gender or anything to negotiate or anything like that, but that's just not true. <laughs> just, no, that's just not. false. No. Yeah, but that's the way it seems to me, and I think that, uh, you know, in their day, they really had to negotiate a great number of barriers that yeah. are, 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 are lost to us. And, and that's one of the great virtues of your book is that you present them again to us and you show that there were ways in which they could speak, there were things in which they could do, there were paths open to them um, that were determined precisely by the fact they were women. Period, yeah. end of story. Yeah. And, and in that way, I, I think that you've done just a really, a really terrific job. Because again, I, and maybe it's only true of Americans or something, but we tend to look at these things and just say, enough already, I don't want to think about this anymore. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, you know. I, I, yeah, it's it's a remarkable. We we don't want to remember the past. We, we don't <laughs> think that it, it's it's things are perfect. But, but you know, I, I want to thank you very much for spending so much time with us today. It's been, no, it's been, it's been really terrific. Let me ask you our 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 um, our, uh, our traditional final question, um, Katie. What are you um, working on now? Well, um, I have to say, I was, I'm I'm not really leaving this topic. I was so struck by how important family ties were to Lenin and his ability to function as a revolutionary that um, I've decided to open up my investigation and look at how families of other revolutionaries were, were part of a wider movement. So I'm looking at who married whom within the revolutionary movement, uh, how right. they coped with having children, that's how right. parents intervened on their behalf, you know, obstructed police repression and so on. And I'm just looking at how the, the revolutionary movement in the underground period was essentially sustained by people who chipped in from the sides um, due to sort of family loyalties um, and, and kept the, the revolutionary movement going in, in sort of almost imperceptible ways, but, right. but in a way that um, 
I, I think will help bring more attention as well to the role that women played. I think that's a ter- I think that's terrific too. You know, again, it's kind of a page out. I, I studied early modern Russian history for a long yeah. time, and who was married to whom was the, the fundamental question. <laughs> it was yeah, all, that was really all that mattered. <laughs> and I sort of suspect it's still somewhat true. Uh, you know, I mean, that still matters to be honest with you. But in in those uh, in those days, I think it was extraordinarily important. And I, yeah. I I think it's a fantastic topic. And as soon as you're done, I want you to promise me that you will call me and we'll interview you about that project. Oh. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Well, Katie Turton, thanks very much. The book um, is Forgotten Lives, uh, the role of Lenin's sisters in the Russian Revolution, 1864 to 1937. I enjoyed uh, reading it, and I enjoyed talking to you. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on the okay, show. Thank thanks, you. Katie. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Katie Turton, author of Forgotten Lives, the role of Lenin's sisters in the Russian Revolution, 1864 to 1937. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope to talk to you next week.